And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, being Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. This is still the narration of one full day of ministry with Jesus. It started out with them going to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus, as a traveling rabbi, was invited to speak. He did, and while he was speaking, he spoke with authority, and it caught the people's attention. And it also caught the attention of a demonized man that was standing there, who called out and called out for Jesus and said, what are you doing here? Why have you come to destroy us? And Jesus cast out that demon right in the middle of the synagogue service. And everybody was very amazed and alarmed then. Jesus goes home with Simon Peter and Andrew and then James and John, who were the only four of the 12 that were following him at this time. Go back to Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Jesus lays hands on her, raises her up, and she begins to serve them. She was healed. And that night, as soon as the Sabbath day ended, there's knocks on the door as the entire crowd, the entire city comes together, bringing all those that were sick and demonized. And Jesus spends that whole evening healing and casting out demons. It's an unbroken string of miracles, basically, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. And so what it tells us in verse 35 is, when that was all over, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. Now I'm not a morning person, but I will tell you, there's no better time to meet with Jesus than first thing in the morning before the day has started. I would like to improve that, but this is what Jesus did. You would think that after a day like that, Jesus would take a well-deserved rest. I'm sleeping in at least till a normal hour spending all day ministering. Some of y'all know we've laid hands and prayed for the sick and we've uh, done ministry and it's, it's tiring and it's emotionally exhausting as well. Imagine having to deal with demonized people all day long. Now, Christ was Christ and it, it was, you know, with a word we know, but still, he was a man as well and he would have been tired. It would have been perfectly fine to expect that he would want to rest that day. Or maybe if you're of a more entrepreneurial mindset, you might say, okay, good. That was a great first day. Now we got to get up. We got to push again. We got to go again, same day, you know, double down, keep it up. You know, we're up by five points, we got to be up by 10 points. And if we're up by 10, we got to be up by 15 until that clock runs out. But Jesus doesn't do any of those things. We find Jesus sneaking out of the house in the middle of the night and going out to, it says, a desolate place. A desolate place. Now, Capernaum was by the sea or by the Sea of Galilee, the lakeside, we probably would say. So it would have been a fertile place and the, the hills around that area are well watered and there's, there's foliage and all the rest. But he goes out to a place where there's nobody else, a desolate place. He goes out to the woods or up under the mountain or wherever it might have been to pray. This was a common practice of Jesus. Luke 5.16 comments that Jesus would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. So he, Mark narrates this one instance of it, but Luke, who gives us more detail, as he tends to do, says, and Jesus did this all the time, especially during moments of decision. There are three key moments we're going to see Jesus praying in the book of Mark, and every one of them is before a big decision. The first one is at the very beginning of his ministry. What do we do next? The second time is going to be when he selects the 12 disciples. And the third time is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. Now, this might seem strange to us at first. Like, hold on a minute. Verse 1 of this book told us that Jesus was the Son of God. Why is he praying? You ever wonder that? Why is Jesus praying? You know, you might even wonder, well, if, G if Jesus is God, who is he praying to? And that's where the Trinity gets into it. But I'm not going to really go down that road tonight. What this teaches us is that in his flesh, as we explained last time, Jesus was totally 100% human. And he was living willingly 
without access to his divine privileges that he had with the Father. He would take those up after his resurrection, but in the meantime, he lived as one of us. That means in his flesh, Jesus was in total submission to his Father and the Holy Spirit. We've already seen that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Who drives Jesus anywhere? Maybe you've even been out somewhere with somebody that has a little bit of authority. You're my boss, but you can't talk to me that way. You know, or like you've been with your, a coach in your life or some, somebody who's in authority, but not that much authority. Well, who gets to drive Jesus out of the city? Who gets to tell Jesus, you got to go to the wilderness for 40 days? The Holy Spirit does. Jesus is in submission. He was not presumptuous in his actions, but he sought God's will. John 5, 19, Jesus explained it. Jesus said to them there, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, he's talking about himself here, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. You know, we sing that song, Blessed Assurance, and it's got that line in it, perfect submission. Jesus Christ demonstrates perfect submission for us, doesn't he? I don't do anything. I only do what my Father says. Well, that's great. But how are you supposed to know what your father says? Well, didn't Jesus have some kind of like telekinetic, you know, relationship with God where he's just kind of walking in this constant, like, like got an earpiece telling him what to do. Only thing we see in the Bible is that Jesus prayed a lot and the Holy Spirit spoke and ministered to him in the same way the Holy Spirit speaks and ministers to you and to me. Jesus took the time to seek God's will. I'm not trying to imply that his relationship with the father was not special, but I am trying to show us that in a very blessed way, it was ordinary as concerns the Christian life, although lived to its maximum. Now, for some of us, if we're trying to discern what the Father's will is, you might look around at the fact that there's basically a revival going on in Capernaum. It's signs and wonders and demons being cast out and people listening to the word. Well, what do we do, Lord? What do you mean, what do you do? You stay there and you keep on reviving the revival. That's what you're supposed to do. Some of us might even say something unfortunate, like, well, you don't even need to pray about this one. Jesus didn't see it that way. If he had gathered his disciples together, or maybe even, dare I say, some of us, and said, what do we do next, guys? Should we stay here or should we go somewhere else? Uh, you stay here, Jesus. Look at this. This is, this is everything you could have ever possibly hoped for. Let's just stay in Capernaum. But Jesus doesn't see it that way. He goes to this desolate place to pray, to seek God's will. And does it really need to be said, friends, that if Jesus needed to pray how much more do you need to pray? How much more do I need to pray? That Jesus Christ, even when he was exhausted and tired, not from going out partying or watching a late movie, but from casting out demons, he still took the time to go out and seek the Lord's face before the sun came up. Because he knew when that sun came up, so would his disciples be up. I imagine Peter woke up bright and early on that day like a kid on Christmas morning. He's like, what are we going to do today, Jesus? I think there's a few more demonized people we didn't get in this city. What are we going to do next? We likewise have to learn to pray and seek God's will, especially when major decisions must be made, even to decline to make a decision until the Lord can be sought. Jesus promised that this would be available to us. Because you may hear this and go, okay, look, Jesus was Jesus. We're us. Yeah, he can go and get, you know, word from heaven. He can radio in to home base and find out what to do next. But we don't get to do that. 
Only Jesus can do that. There are some people that will straight up tell you, you shouldn't bother seeking God's will because you're never going to know what it is. Well, I respectfully disagree, and biblically, I disagree. In John 14, Jesus makes a very big deal of the fact that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and be within you just as I was with you. That the same Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus earlier in this chapter has come upon each one of us if you have believed in Christ Jesus. He says he's going to teach you. He's going to instruct you. John the Apostle will even write in one of his epistles, you have no need that anybody should teach you. And not a dangerous thing to say. Tell a bunch of people at church, you don't need anybody to teach you. Holy Spirit will teach you. Now, I thought God ordained teachers. He did. But the same Spirit that is animating and teaching those teachers dwells within you as well. So the same Holy Spirit has come upon us. You look at this, that's the theology of it. Well, how does it played out? Read through the book of Acts, friends. The book of Acts is an ongoing partnership between the church and the Holy Spirit. They'll even say in Acts chapter 15, they'll have a big meeting, the, the council at Jerusalem. Well, are we going to let Gentiles into the church or not? And when they make their decision, they'll send out a letter and it says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They include the Holy Spirit as part of this decision-making process. You know, you read the Declaration of Independence or you read the Constitution. It says, in Congress, and it has the names all at the bottom. Include the Holy Spirit's name on there. In agreement with the Holy Spirit and the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it is. That there's conversation between the Spirit and the people. When he separates Paul and Barnabas to go out and go to the first missionary journey. As we'll read later when he prohibits Paul and Barnabas from going into Bithynia. When he says, look, you, I've got an opinion on what you're going to do. That that is what is demonstrated for us in the book of Acts. So not only did Jesus promise it, it's what is seen in the book of Acts. And Paul in Colossians 1 verse 9 explicitly tells us that it is appropriate and even apostolic to ask to know the will of God. Let me read this, Colossians 1 9. He tells the Colossians, we have not ceased to pray for you. Kind of cool to know that Paul prays for you a lot, right? We have not ceased to pray for you. And what is he praying for? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul says, I want you to know the will of God, understand the will of God, and have wisdom on how to live out the will of God. It's a quick three-point sermon for you right there. Now all I need is a poem. He says, I want you to know the will of God. I went to a Baptist seminary. It's where I picked up on that. <laughs> God's not going to distance himself from you, friends. God is not up there saying, you better do the right thing, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. You know, it's, it's not like he's going to make a law and then say, but I'm not going to tell you what the law is. Oh, you broke it. Sorry. God desires to reveal his will to us. He sent his Holy Spirit to us. The church is supposed to be going about our works that he's prepared beforehand. How are we supposed to know what they are? Well, because the head of the church has sent the spirit of the church to come upon the church to lead and guide the church. I'm trying to demonstrate to you from the scriptures through the promises of Christ, the example of the book of Acts, and the testimony of Colossians and other passages, the will of God is something you can and are expected to know. Now, I, I've taught messages on how to hear the voice of the Lord before, and this is always where I would go off and I would talk about searching God's word, right? If you want to know what the Holy Spirit is saying, you've got to know what he said, right? Holy Spirit's not going to contradict himself. And I've found that sometimes folks that are the most free with what God said to me are the most biblically illiterate people you'll ever meet. Do I believe that God says things to us? Absolutely. But I also believe that he wrote a book 
And you need to learn what the book says. That's true. You also need to act in good wisdom. The Bible is full of all these things teaching us on how to be wise. And the Bible even admits, not not even grudgingly, says a good, mature person knows what's wise. There's good common sense that we're all expected to use. So if you say, I'm trying to do something God has told me to do, and it goes against all common sense, that doesn't mean it's wrong, but it does mean you might need to pray an extra hour just to be sure. And yes, you should should seek the advice of good people. If you find somebody who just knows the voice of God, if you think God is talking to you, go ask him. So what does it feel like when God talks to you? What does it feel like? Because I think I might be saying this. What do you say? And then you, you consult those things. That's all those are true. But what this passage is trying to teach us is that when you need to discover God's will, there is no replacement for a vigorous prayer life to receive the will of God. You see this in 2 Samuel chapter 5, where David is is fighting a battle. And the first day, the Lord says, here's what you do. You go up and you you fight him. Just fight him head on. Okay, good. Next day, what does he say? Don't fight him head on. Wait until you hear the rustling of the trees. And then I want you to go around in a pincher movement and take him from behind. Two days, same battle, so same situation, but two different words from the Lord. How did David know the difference? He took the time to pray. There is no replacement for a prayer life in the life of a Christian. Because the way the Lord most often speaks to us is through what is often called an impression upon the heart. We say that sometimes, right? The Lord put that on my heart. You're just praying, you're asking the Lord for something, and all of a sudden there's these, these invasive ideas that come to you. That's how I can describe it for myself. It's like, is that something the Lord has said? I think that might be the Lord. This just seems, seems right. No, the Lord, it says, speaks to us in that still, small voice to be still and to listen to what he has to say. The Lord also does give us things like dreams and visions. The Lord grants us insights from his word. You ever be reading a Bible passage you've read a million times, and then all of a sudden it's like one of those sentences is just fluorescent lights. Woo, 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 woo. Like, well, okay, I know what this means in context, but I think God is also speaking to my specific situation. Now, the Bible tells us everything we need to know. Okay, yeah, in one sense, yes. But the Bible doesn't tell us, should we get involved in prison ministry or after school ministry? There's no verse that's going to tell you that. But God may very well have an opinion on that. How do you know? A prayer life, friends. You must pray. Jesus Christ himself did not assume anything. And if anybody had the right to assume what God's will was, I think Jesus did. You know, he kind of had an inside track, if you know what I mean. But instead, he said, I'm going to go to the wilderness and I'm going to seek God's will for this day. So this is your first lesson, y'all. You need to seek God's will in prayer, on your knees, with an open Bible, and maybe with a friend by your side. But you need to find out what God wants you to do. That's what Jesus did. And then we get to verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. So how do you think Peter felt in the morning? Wakes up first thing, bright and early, and maybe his mom's out there cooking breakfast, like, oh, this is going to be a day. Don't wake him up. He's very tired. I'm sure he's he's busy. And then I say, okay, Lord, Master, Rabbi, it's time to, where'd he go? And then maybe the people are starting to show up at the door. Hey, my, my daughter has chicken pox. Hey, my son broke his head. Okay, just a minute. Uh, he'll be out in just a minute. Where did he go? <laughs> and so it says they went looking for him. The word for there in Greek is katadioko. And it can mean to hunt or to track down. 
even to persecute in certain contexts. So the idea is they are frantically and feverishly looking for him. Maybe they saw them looking out the back of the house and they go, hey, where are you going? Where is he? Uh, we're, we'll, we'll, he'll be right there. And now they're out in the woods. He's not going to be out here in the woods. Did he just ditch us? He told us to follow him. Oh, there he is. And they walk up and you see verse 37 when it says, everybody is looking for you. It's three terse words in Greek. They're like, all seek you. It says, Jesus, everybody's wondering where you are and you didn't leave a note. Don't you know it's polite to leave a note? When you go out, because there's no cell phones and you can't text yet, all seek you. It's, it's kind of curt. And it was surprising me when I read it. I'm like, they kind of sound frustrated. Like, listen, Mr. Messiah, we've got customers down there. And my mom's trying to cook breakfast for everybody, and you're not even here. Well, that might be stunning to read, but you know what's even more stunning is Jesus' answer. They're out there in the wilderness, and they said, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. We've got to get back. He goes, let's go somewhere else. Excuse me? Yeah, let's leave. You got your stuff? I mean, I, I can go get it. Yeah, go get your stuff and bring it back and we'll go. You want to leave now? There's people down there waiting for you. He goes, yeah, but we need to go to those other villages, other towns and cities, because that's why I came. I came to preach the gospel. I came to preach the good news and, and not just minister in one place. And I would imagine, all oh, it doesn't give us their reaction, the disciples probably would not have understood this. They certainly didn't seem to understand why Jesus secluded himself early in the morning. They didn't even get all spiritual, like, oh, of, of course, the, the Lord needed to pray. Oh, that's very, very good. But it is, you know, it's getting late and time to go. But they didn't even try that. But now he says, let's leave. Let's leave the revival and go somewhere else. Why would he do this? They didn't get that. It didn't make sense to them. I'm sure this was the first of many moments where they would sit back and while Jesus is over there, they're saying, okay, what? this is crazy, right? What is it? We should be back there. We could have started. You got to lay a foundation. And, you know, James and John, like, my dad owns a business. I know how to run business. And Peter's like, yeah, well, I've been your foreman this whole time. I know how to do this. You got to lay the foundation. And then you expand. And then you make plans for growth. And you lay that foundation. You, what is he doing? He's just leaving. They're all going to get mad at him. Apparently, there are times when God's will is other than what man's common sense would dictate. Can I say that again? There are times when the will of God is different than what the common sense of man would dictate. I mentioned to you when Paul and Silas, I think I said Barnabas earlier, I meant Silas. When Paul and Silas in Acts 16 tried to go into Asia, which is where the cities of Ephesus and Laodicea and other parts would have been. And it says the Holy Spirit did not permit them. Doesn't say how. Maybe their passports were declined when they got to the border. Who knows? <laughs> And then it said, we tried to preach the word in Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit didn't let us do that either. So we tried to go east, nothing doing. We tried to go north, that didn't work. So we went down to Troasum, which was a, a port city, so we could kind of go anywhere until the Lord spoke. And then the Holy Spirit gave them a vision. Now, common sense would say, well, let's just keep going to where the big cities are. What difference does it make? Nobody has the gospel. Let's just go anywhere. <laughs> anywhere we go, we're going to find somebody that doesn't know Jesus. Let's just start. But the Holy Spirit had an opinion. The biggest example of this in Scripture, I think, comes from Acts chapter 8. You might want to turn there. I'm going to read a good section of it. But this is a very similar situation. This is in the early days of the church when the first persecution had rocked the church. The first persecution spearheaded by Saul of Tarsus, who had become Paul the Apostle. And especially the Hellenistic Christian Jews had to leave. The Hellenists were those that were Jewish, but they were living according to Greek culture. 
So they were expelled. And it seems those that were stuck with the Hebrew culture were not harassed as much. But Philip goes up to Samaria. And uh, let me read it to you. In Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, Philip was one of the seven that were chosen to handle the widow's distribution alongside Stephen. And it says here, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Pause. That's pretty outstanding. First guy taking the gospel outside Judea and Galilee going to Samaria and there's a mighty revival and apparently there were a lot of demons that were being cast out. Imagine being at one of those meetings where Philip the evangelist is preaching. Demons are being cast out and everybody's listening. All the Samaritans are listening. What an amazing thing. And then the next passage goes on to describe how Peter and John come down. They lay hands on all the Samaritans and they are baptized with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in tongues and have all the amazing signs and wonders that were seen before. You get down to verse 26 and here's what God says to Philip. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. What does he say? Leave. Leave the revival and these brand new baby Samaritan Christians. Just after Peter and John have brought the Holy Ghost into this, this meeting, it's been amazing. I want you to get up and leave. Where do you want me to go? I want you to go to the desert. I want you to go south, past Jerusalem where you came from, down into the south, going down towards Gaza where it starts to get to that desert between Israel and Egypt. Why? Doesn't tell him why. It says, just go. Now, we look at that in our common sense and say, no, don't leave. Stay where you're being effective, Philip. You need to do, obviously God's called you here. Well, an angel of the Lord told me to leave. Well, that angel lied. That's the devil trying to trick you, Philip. He's trying to tell you to get away when you're having such an amazing impact over here but it was the will of the Lord. The Lord told him to do something that went contrary to man's common sense. And other examples like that proliferate throughout scripture. God tells Moses, don't go north of the Gulf of Aqaba, go south until you run smack into the Red Sea. And then they get stuck between the Red Sea, the rocks and the army charging from the desert behind them. Well, you can always tell if you're doing the right thing because all of God's people will agree with you. I've heard people say things like that. All God's people will be in one accord if it's really God's will. Really? Because when Moses brought the people to the Red Sea, they said, how about we kill Moses, bring his head, and say, ah, see, sorry, we're very sorry, we killed him. Here you go. It's because there's no graves in Egypt, you brought us to die in the wilderness? How about Jericho? Joshua chapter 6. Joshua, hey guys, an angel of the Lord came to me. The commander of the army of heaven said, he's with us. Oh, what do we do? Well, we're going to march around the city. Oh, yeah, scare tactics. I like it. Then what do we do? Well, then the next day we come back and we do it again. Okay? Then what? Then we do it again. Do we like shoot arrows or, you know, do we like, you know, do a little trash talk? No, no, you're not allowed to talk the whole time. So we're just marching. Yes, we're just marching. And then on the seventh day, you ready? Seven times we walk around the city. And then what? Well, then God said he'll give Jericho into our hands. You got to know there's some commander behind the scenes going, okay, look, I, I try, I'm going to drop a little battle plan. Let's have it in my back pocket. It's like, what do we do now, Joshua? I don't know. Okay, well, how, what about this? Why don't we try, you know, battering rams, jo Joshua. This is what we do. It didn't make human sense, but God was in it. How about in 1 Kings 18, 
When Elijah says, how about we have a, a God contest? You make a sacrifice and I'll make a sacrifice and we'll ask for our gods to send fire down from heaven. That's your plan, Elijah? Why not a debate? Why not a debate? You'll mop the floor with these pagans, man. Why not just have that? Why not raise an army? They're just going to go up there. What if God doesn't do it? Has God ever sent fire down from heaven because somebody asked before, Elijah? But the Lord's will was in it. What am I trying to demonstrate? That sometimes the will of the Lord is different from what our common sense would dictate. The simple truth is that God's will is higher and wiser than ours is. And sometimes he tells us to do things that seem foolish. Now, are they foolish? Of course not. Was Moses foolish for taking them to the Red Sea? No, because God was going to part the Red Sea. Was Elijah foolish for challenging them to a fire from heaven contest? No, because God was going to send fire from heaven. The walls of Jericho fell down. But here's the thing. You don't always know all those pieces when God tells you what to do. Abraham, leave your family and go to a land that I'll tell you. Then what? I'll tell you when you get there. Okay, I'm leaving. Anything else? Nope, nothing. Until he gets there. When God is involved, these are not foolish things. Yet you will feel foolish. You will seem foolish. Which is why Paul tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians that God takes the foolish things of the world and puts to shame the wise. Not that God does stupid things, but that we're not as smart as we think we are. Because if God is involved, your possibilities are actually limitless. What does this mean? It means that that time you spend early in the morning seeking the will of God is absolutely essential to the life of a Christian. You have to know what God wants. You need to take the time, dad, to kneel down and ask God what he wants you to do. You need to take the time, mom, to find out what does the Lord want us to do with these children? What does the Lord want us to do with this money, with your ministry team, with your business, whatever it might be? Have you sought the Lord? Well, God doesn't concern himself with such things. Are you sure? Are you sure about that? Or is that just an excuse you use so that you can run your life the way you want to? Or is it maybe that you think that God is so lofty, he doesn't have time for you? The opposite of that is true. Read throughout the scriptures. The Lord is constantly intervening in the lives of his people. He has an opinion on what you're going to do. And this also means that when people come around and say to you things like, hey, everybody's looking for you. Get back to Capernaum. You need to have the strength of character and the fortitude to insist upon God's will. No, we're doing it this way. Don't you see what's right in front of you? You ain't got the money for that. We're doing it this way. Don't you know what the government's going to say if you try to pull something off like that? We're doing it this way. Don't you know that nobody's going to go with you? Everybody thinks this is a ridiculous idea. We're doing it this way. Why? Because God told me. Okay, yeah, we all say that. But have you heard from the Lord? Then you need to do what the Lord told you. Because God tells us to do things so that we can then act in the face of adversity. Many times we hear the word of the Lord, we know what to do, but we're intimidated by people who can bully us and get in our face and hold the so-called facts up in front of us and say, you're being ridiculous. That's why I love the older translation of the book of Jeremiah. When God first calls him to minister, he says, do not be afraid of their faces. Because sometimes that's exactly what it is. We're afraid of the faces. We know what God has said, but we think, oh, I can't do this. Because so many good people couldn't be wrong. This happened to the Apostle Paul. This is a very interesting passage. Because I think this passage is very commonly misunderstood. 
In Acts 21, when Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem, the prophet Agabus, pretty cool guy. We have a lot of cool stories about Agabus. He comes up, he takes Paul's belt, binds his hands and feet and says, this is what will happen to the man who owns this belt when he gets to Jerusalem. He's saying, God has told me that when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound and arrested. And he was not the first prophet to tell him this, by the way. And then everybody begins to beg Paul, don't go, don't go, don't go. Now, what some people have said is Paul was an idiot because God was clearly speaking to him that he shouldn't go. But if you actually read the passage closely, the prophecy was, you will be arrested in Jerusalem. They then made the leap of logic and inferred, therefore, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. But Paul had already heard the word of the Lord. And he said in Acts 21, 13, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul knew what God had told him to do. And the other prophets were receiving word from the Lord. Paul is going to be arrested. And they tried to warn him. And those warnings were appropriate. But what was not appropriate was the other people who had not heard from the Lord, assuming that God could only have revealed this to you to warn you away from going. When Paul knew better, Paul knew the Lord was simply telling him what to expect. You've got to be brave enough to insist upon God's will. Common sense is not the same thing as divine direction. Will those things overlap? Yeah, most of the time they will. But there will be those moments in your life, friends, where the Lord will call you to take a step of faith. That means I'm going to execute a course of action not knowing how it will work out. Not knowing how this is going to happen. I just know that God told me. You need both. You need common sense. Read the book of Proverbs. Read Ecclesiastes. Read some of those Psalms. The Lord gives us a lot of wisdom. Jesus will teach us a lot of practical wisdom. But you also need divine direction. And you need more divine direction than you need common sense. The simple fact is we don't have all the facts. But God does. You know, if a soldier, a grunt out there in the field, is going to start questioning every order that comes his way, he's going to wreck the whole battle plan. Because there's somebody who has all the information, has all the facts, and is making a decision from up top that includes all these pieces. But if every individual piece only makes a decision based on what's right in front of them, it's not going to work. Sir, I can't go that way. They have guns. I know, you need to go. But I can't. But look at that. They're shooting at us. I know, but it's a battle. You need to move forward. But this just doesn't seem right. Because why would you send us right over that way? Because there's a million other pieces you don't see. Well, I need to see them first. Yeah, no one's going to accomplish anything that way, are they? When you're playing football, you're playing basketball, you don't really concern yourself so much with what somebody else is doing. You've got your assignment, and you do that assignment. It's the same thing with the Lord. People will call you crazy. People will get offended at you. You ever have somebody get offended at you for refusing their advice? Some people do that do you know who I am? And you're not going to do what I say? Oh yeah, you hear from the Lord. We all hear from the Lord. This is what's good. I'm just telling you what's true. Well, do you believe this or don't you? Or they'll simply dismiss you. I had somebody ask me one time, a friend of mine, he said, all right, why did you move to Alabama? He says, now I know you're going to say God told you to come, but besides that, and I told him, I don't really have much of a besides that to give you, my friend. And that conversation led to you should go back while you still can. Wasn't trying to, you know, be the devil in my life. He was trying to do me a favor. You're going to have such a hard go of it. There's a million churches down here. They don't want new ones. And you had an awesome setup. Go back home. Take your kids back to their grandparents and live that life. I said, I can't. God told me. 
All right. <laughs> You'll hear that, but you can't be afraid of their faces. Jesus said, this is the reason I came out. And that's actually interesting. Is, like, is he saying that's why I came out of Capernaum? Or is he saying that's why I came down from heaven in the first place? I think it might be a little bit of both, right? The purpose of that was to preach the good news, which is exactly what he did throughout that northern region of Israel in Galilee. And we get to verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will, or I desire, I want that. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. We don't have a determinate time stamp here. We don't know how long after Capernaum this was. Uh, it would seem to be kind of close. We, otherwise, why would Simon have told the story this way? I like to think they might have encountered this guy on the outskirts of the city as they were leaving. Because this man was a leper. A leper, this is a person who has leprosy. Now, leprosy is a rather broad category in the Bible. Uh, when we say leprosy today, we refer to what is technically called Hansen's disease, which is where the, the skin will die, the flesh will rot, and the fingers and toes and extremities will start to fall off. They have those that have that disease at Pashpati Temple in Nepal, in Kathmandu. And I will never forget seeing a woman laid out there um, they lay them out there with a bowl so that you can give them money, and then after the day's over, they put them in the trucks and drive them away, and they take all the money. Uh, but this woman had a bite taken out of the bottom of her foot, out of her heel. Look, like somebody had taken an apple and bit out of it. But she couldn't feel it because it was completely dead. And it was probably a monkey or one of the other animals they had running around there. It's a tragic situation. But their situation is very similar to the one they would have faced in Israel. But it could have included more than just Hansen's disease, you understand it. You read through the book of Leviticus, and it describes all sorts of different things that all fell under the category of leprosy. Shall we say, contagious skin disease is what this means. Certainly would have included this one, though. And we see from Leviticus 13 what would have had to be the case, what the life of a leprous man, what it would have looked like. It says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip, like a, like a mask, and cry out, unclean, unclean. Anytime somebody when he gets close to you, don't touch me, bro. Don't touch me, I'm not clean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Baffles me how many people want to rant and rave against the Lord for instituting such a law. They've got to live all by themselves. That's so messed up. Well, if you're living in a culture where there's no vaccinations, there's no medicine, you can't live with everybody else. It doesn't say you did something wrong. This is where the Pharisees were in error. It doesn't say you did something wrong that you're a sinner. It says you are what? Unclean. You're not clean. You're contagious. You can't stay with everybody else. You need to go out and live by yourself so that nobody else contracts leprosy. It's very practical, very hard life for sure. But that's the way it had to be. And there was all sorts of provision made for what would happen if a leper was cleansed. But there's one of the rabbi, rabbinic traditions of this time. That included the quotation, it is easier to raise the dead than to cleanse a leper. This was in the category of, if you got one of these serious skin things, man, that's about it for you. Sorry, you need to go outside. But this man had faith. And he comes to Jesus, calling to him. You get the sense he's from a distance. I, I can't touch you, but you can make me clean. You see why he says make me clean? Because he was unclean. And he needed Jesus to cleanse him. Mark often uses the word cleanse when associated with leprosy as opposed to the word healed, which would still apply, but there's a very specific sense here of being cleansed. 
Now, verse 41, you may have a footnote in your Bible, a very interesting textual variant, because it says there, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand. Moved with pity. This is the Greek word, splanknistes. And it comes from the word splankna, which means guts, or bowels, or entrails. Now, when we say, I love you, we say, I love you with all my heart. You weirdo, what's so emotional about a heart? It's a little red thumping thing in the middle of your chest. It's gross. That's what somebody might say to us. This culture, they say, the proper seat of the emotions is, I love you with all of my bowels, all of my splunkna, all of my guts. Now, we even still kind of talk that way, don't we? I could feel it in my gut. I got to go with my gut on this one. I had a gut feeling, although it's not very romantic to talk about your bowels around Valentine's Day, for example, but that is how they talked back then. So when it says he was, he was moved, it says that, you know, there was this visceral sense of compassion. However, most copies of the book of Mark include that word. There are a few notable witnesses that have the, the word oristes, which would not say he was moved with pity. It would say angered, that Jesus was angered when he did this. And this is a minority representation among the text, but there are certain church fathers that comment on the fact how Jesus was angry here. Uh, so it's most likely the, the first one, but it is possible that this is not so much saying that Jesus had compassion for this leper, but that he was angry. Angry at the leper? No. Angry like, I cannot believe what sin has done to these people. The point is, there is a strong emotional reaction that Jesus has here. Another sermon for another day, of course Jesus had emotions. There's certain intellectual types that want to say that Jesus did not, but what else do you call this? Well, the leper told him two things. As if you will or desire, you can cleanse me. Jesus responds with the inverse of those words. He says, I will, meaning I do want that for you, and be clean. Be cleansed. How many times do we believe that God has the power to heal us? We just think he just doesn't want to. And yet when people came to Jesus talking like that, he would say, I do want that for you. He touched him, which would have been unheard of. And also would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean for touching a leper. Which means he would have had to go through the proper washing and the ceremony and be unclean until the sun went down. But he healed him. We only have two instances in the whole Bible, Old Old Testament, of a leper being healed. It's really one and a half examples. The first one is from Numbers chapter 12, where Miriam is gossiping about Moses and God afflicts her with leprosy. And then after a week, the leprosy goes away and she's brought back into the camp. So that kind of hardly counts. The other one is 2 Kings chapter 5 is a story of Naaman, who is the, the Syrian general that dunked in the water seven times at Elisha's word and was healed. So this is pretty astonishing. We, oh yeah, Jesus healed lepers all the time. Remember, they thought it was easier to raise the dead than to heal a leper, and yet this is what Jesus did. What do we learn from this in context here? Had Jesus never left Capernaum, he probably would never have come upon this man. Even if the man knew where Jesus was, he's not going to come into the city. He's going to get punished for that. He'd be driven away. He might even be stoned for something like that. Get away from my kids. Get away from me. Don't touch me. Get out of here. But Jesus, in his travels, comes across this man. God knew we got to leave the city. Everybody's bringing them to you. Well, God's sitting there thinking, yes, but what about those that cannot be brought to him? What about those that are on the outside? What about those? When are they going to get to see Jesus? This is similar to what happened in, in Philip. We're going to finish Philip's story now. Remember Philip with the revival in Samaria? And he says, go down to the desert near Gaza. And that whole trip, you know he's got to be thinking, what am I doing here? 
I can't even really go to Jerusalem. And maybe they, hey, Philip, how are things going in Samaria? Uh, good, I'm leaving. Why are you leaving? Well, I'm going to the desert. <laughs> Why? Well, God told me to go there. Uh, great. Uh, is everything all right? You know, you okay? <laughs> you know, checking in on him. But he goes all the way down to the desert until we get to verse 27 of Acts chapter 8, where it says, And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit said to Philip, lines for the Holy Ghost, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? You ever feel that way reading the book of Isaiah? You're not alone. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And I'm sure you know the story. Philip leads this guy to the Lord, baptizes him. Philip is translated. He's picked up and taken to another place by the Holy Spirit. And that Ethiopian, according to church tradition, went down and became the first evangelist in the continent of Africa. Now, if you're sitting in Samaria and you've got a mighty revival going on, hey, there's one man in the desert I want you to preach to. Lord, have you no sense of proportion? <laughs> have you no sense of my gifts need to be used here? But in reality, God, God's command that violated common sense didn't violate common sense at all. Philip just didn't have all the facts. But he knew better. He knew to listen. That the Red Sea was going to part. The wall was going to fall. Fire was going to come from heaven. Only God can see those things. So you've got to start listening to his voice and not waiting to see it. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, when you first say, I'm going to start listening to God's voice, boy, is that ever intimidating to do things that don't seem to make sense. And you can feel foolish. You can feel betrayed because God will tell you to go do something and you'll be in the early parts of this and nothing's happening. You go, thanks a lot, God. But I'm doing such a bad job in Samaria. You had to send me to the desert and like leave me there. <laughs> but you will learn to trust the will of the Lord because Jesus is never going to let you down. You just don't know what part of the story you're in. I'm stealing a line from Sunday. You don't know what part of the story you're in yet. Can you at least admit that God knows better than you do? That God is smarter than you? I know some of us, like, being smart is our whole thing. So the idea of admitting that anybody is smarter than us is very difficult. But can we at least put God in that category? Isaiah 55, verse 8 says, My ways are not your ways. Lord, it's not how, how you do it. Yeah, I don't do things the way you do it. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. I don't think like you think. And in fact, my thoughts and my ways are so much higher than yours. It's as high as the heaven to the earth. Higher. Like on a different level, man. That's how God thinks. So when he tells you to do something, you best listen up. Because God has all the variables. You don't. Well, according to the information we have, this is the best decision. God goes, I have more information. Do something else. Well, I don't see it. But you hear my voice, don't you? Yes, then obey. Jesus' obedience led to a miracle that was thought impossible even among other miracles. Listen to him. Take the time in the early morning and hear from him and then trust him. Stick to your guns when people get in your face and trust him. Verse 43, And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. 
Verse 43 is a harsh verse. The word for sternly charged him, I thought this was funny. Uh, this is the Greek word embrimaiomai. Kind of fun word, embrimaiomai. And it means, in some contexts, to snort. And some people believe this is actually an onomatopoeic word. Do you know what onomatopoeia is? Remember that from poetry class? Words like bang, boom, pow, right? Flash. These are words that sound like what they are, okay? So this word, which can mean to snort, is embrimaiomai. So you can kind of look, embrimaiomai. <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> like that, you know, some stuffy British dude from some old movie or something. <laughs> the, the very idea, right? It's like that. That's how Jesus is talking to this guy. Now you look here, mister. And it says he sent him away, but that word is ekbalo. We've learned it before. It's the word for drive away or even to cast out. So Jesus is speaking here very strongly, which is why some people believe that earlier in that verse when it says he was angry, this all kind of ties together. But he's serious. This is the first time we see Jesus enforcing the messianic secret with a man. Saying, just go to the priests and do what you got to do. And what did he have to do? Well, I don't have time to read it, but Leviticus 14 outlines what the process was. He would go up to the priest. The priest would inspect him to see if the leprosy was indeed gone. Then they would take two birds, turtle doves or pigeons. They would kill one and drain its blood into a bowl with water. They would dip the other pigeon in the blood. They would then... Uh, sprinkle with uh, cedar wood and red thread. They would take the red thread and the cedar wood and the bird that had the blood on it. They would sprinkle the man with it and they would release the dove, symbolic of the leprosy going away. Then there was a seven-day waiting period. He had to completely shave himself, all of his hair of his body, and then go wait for seven days. Then on the eighth day, he would be inspected again. And if he was still clean, there would be three lambs that would be offered, as well as a grain offering. They would take the oil from the offering and the blood from the sacrifice. They put it on the right ear, the right thumb, and the right big toe. And that would be your cleansing. So this is what he would have had to go do. And Jesus says to do this for a says in the ESV, proof. The word is marturia. It's, it's a testimony or a witness either for or against them. Isn't that cool? The language can mean either one. It'd be a witness against them or a witness for them. I think it's kind of cool when the Bible does that because depending on how they react to this, the fact that there's somebody out here healing lepers, that's either going to be a testimony against you on Judgment Day or it's going to be a testimony that will save you when you finally learn the name of Jesus. However, this guy did not obey he went and he preached the word everywhere he went, which was not good. Why? Because now Jesus is no longer able to enter a city, which means what happened in Capernaum was not able to happen anywhere else. He's not able to go to the synagogues and preach, which is why he had come. It's important to remember, I am more excited about miracles than most people. However, the word always comes first. Even Jesus said that. He had to remain in the wilderness and was reduced in the mind of many to a faith healer. Now, he was that, but there was a whole lot more that Jesus had to say. No longer is he going into the cities, he's out in the wilderness. Now, it's hard to think of that as all bad, you know. Hey, at least they're coming to Jesus. And he certainly accomplished his mission. But it's plain that this is not what the Holy Spirit intended here. And the last lesson we're going to learn tonight, we've learned about finding God's will, insisting upon God's will, trusting God's will, and now we're talking about safeguarding God's will. You need to protect it. Because to violate the will of God is to dilute the will of God. Is it possible to go against the will of God? Yeah, it's called sin, friends. Yeah, many people were healed, but the message would now be limited to those who would come, rather than to those that were simply coming to the synagogue on a Sabbath day. 
failing to heed the direction of God. Jesus heard God's direction and then did it, and it led to an amazing outcome. This leper heard the will of God, didn't do it, and it led to a lesser outcome. Sometimes we celebrate what God has done when maybe we should be grieving because God had a greater victory in mind. But by failing to heed his words, we diluted it. I wonder if we're going to get to heaven and we're going to see the Lord show us a few things. It's great what I did, but this is what I told you to do. I know, Lord, but it all worked out anyway, right? He goes, well, yes and no, because this is what happened, but this is what I would have done. I wanted to do this through you. Learn from the bad example of the leper and the good example of Jesus. Listen to God's voice, friends. Maybe some of you still need convincing that God wants to speak to you. Amos chapter 3, verse 7 says, The Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. How many things does God do without telling people? None. He does nothing without revealing his secret. Well, I'm not a prophet. Yeah, well, Paul said we should all pray that we should prophesy. 1 Corinthians 14. Matthew 7. Here's a New Testament example, verses 7 and 8 from the Lord himself. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Jesus said, if you want something, just come ask me. If you go to God and ask him for his will, do you think he's going to say no? James 1 says God gives wisdom everybody, freely, to anybody who asks of him. Which means you've got to cultivate a prayer life that gets you in the habit of listening and hearing God's word so that you can then take action on God's word. This is all academic if you don't take the time to listen. Because the right course of action is not always the obvious one. God has an opinion on your life and the things you do and the way you go about your day. And once you have heard his voice, with all wisdom and humility, stick to your guns. Don't let people intimidate you. Do what he's told you to do. Trust that he's going to vindicate your faith and safeguard your obedience. And then you will see the impossible start to come to pass in your life.